This is Skylab Control. Four hours, 14 minutes. Ground elapsed time. Skylab Space Station mission. This is the Cosmosphere Podcast, episode 30. Skylab at 50, part two. After the coffee at the Cosmo, I sat down with David and Emily to get their thoughts on a few of the things that we weren't able to cover during the coffee. That audio plus some mission audio from archive.org, which is a fantastic resource, uh, will be played in today's episode. So without any further delay, let's get into part two of my conversation with David and Emily. Enjoy. Here in the control center, the problems associated with the failure of the Saturn workshop solar panels to deploy are being discussed at some length by management and flight controllers. Preliminary telemetry indications are that there could have been a malfunction with one solar ray beam fairing and the meteoroid shield, which could have led to subsequent anomalies. These malfunctions were indicated to have occurred one minute and three seconds after liftoff based on post-launch examination of telemetry. Perfect. So today we are doing a little bit of an after-party recording, as it were, on Friday, uh, the day after the coffee at the Cosmo. I've got Emily Carney and David Hitt here in the uh, green room at the Cosmosphere, so we're recording a little bit more um, on the 50th anniversary of Skylab. Welcome to the podcast version of the show. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. Thank you so much. <laughs> so yesterday, uh, technical difficulties aside, we got to hear from uh, two really cool, you know, important guys in the Skylab missions and shuttle even too. Um, you know, share just briefly what your thoughts were from yesterday. Well, that was an incredible experience. It was for me, you know, I, I've been uh, part of the Skylab story, following the Skylab story for 20 years now. And what was so exciting was seeing Jack, in particular, his passion for telling these stories. You know, he's been telling these stories for literally half a century now. And yet, even so, like, you can't stop him from from (laughs) wanting to keep telling these stories. And it's just, it's so, uh, so awesome to just be party to uh, to seeing that passion for the the story and the history and the accomplishments. Um, I, I thought it was uh, kind of echoing what Dave said, David said, uh, it, it is just, it was just incredible. Uh, it was, you know, on the other side, you know, Milt Windler um, also um, participated. And I feel like whenever there is a Skylab event, whenever you have people who worked on the program, you know, like, like Jack and Milt, whenever you have people who participated in it, you always learn something new about it. That's the thing that gets me is like, it's been 50 years since the program 49 years since the program ended with people on it, you know, and yet you still always learn some, there's always an unseen dimension of it. That's the thing that gets me. There's always something brand new to, to learn and to be like, wow, I didn't know that happened. You know, that's really awesome. And yesterday was like that for me. There were a few things that I was like, wow, I really did not know that. That's really cool. You know? And so it was a lot of fun and, um, yeah, just learning new things about a program that I thought I knew stuff about. <laughs> I'm glad it wasn't just me because I was. I, there was a few things that I caught. I was like, "Oh, 
But it's good to hear like two of the experts even had that experience. So. Um, I, I feel like we could have let Jack and Milt go on a little bit longer too. I wish we could have an episode with them just kind of shooting the breeze, but uh, we'll, we'll do that a little bit today. Um, there's, there was a lot that we discussed yesterday and like one of the big things was the supposed strike or mutiny. You guys have helped put that to rest a lot. Is there anything that you want to add to, you know, the, the, the historical record as it were? Uh, there's not really anything I want to add. I feel like between, um, you know, me, uh, David, uh, uh, Dwight, Stephen Bonecki, who did the uh, Searching for Skylab movie, and, and there's other people to him soon, like Jim so. Scarborough, who who did an article, uh, who, who helped revise the Wikipedia article, which is a big deal because mm-hmm. um, Wikipedia is so public. You know, that's the first thing you find when you do a Google search. But um, <clears throat> it's really awesome after all this time to see, you know, whenever um, – <laughs> I don't want to throw a certain publication under the bus, but whenever you see a certain publication publish their republish the link to their article, hey, these guys did a strike in space and never flew again. It's really cool to see the comment section now. Back, you know, because the comment section now is people, you know, who are basically like, no, that's not what happened. There's a lot of articles that say this is actually what happened. Oh, and John uh, Yuri from um, also from Johnson Space Center. Uh, did a, also a great article about it as well. I want to give him a big shout out. I didn't want to leave him out. But it's really cool because you see people jumping in like, okay, that's actually not what happened. Here's what happened. And they have, you know, resources to point at it, you know. And it's really cool to see those guys on the third mission really finally get the respect they deserve because they had a very successful mission. Um if you watch the crew videos from that mission, you know, they're not grim or dour. They're having fun. They're not, you know, the story, some of the stories versus what you see are so far apart. It's almost like watching, you know, let it be, you know, and then you watch the unedited, let it be. And it's like, wow, the Beatles are actually having a good time. You know, it's not all like death and destruction or anything like that. So um, it's been really cool to see that story publicly get put to rest over the last, I would say, decade or so. Yeah, it's it's been a weird thing for me because Homesteading Space came out in 2008. We're writing the book in, you know, the, the 2004, 2007 time period, which means we're writing the book alongside this little thing called Twitter being invented. And at the time that we're writing the book, like there was an awareness that, oh gosh, you know, I mean, 30 years earlier, 20 years earlier, there had been this this little urban legend about a Skylab mutiny, but like by that point in time, nobody really believed it. And so there's, you know, maybe a couple of sentences in the book addressing it. If we had had any idea, you know, if we had known that this thing called Twitter was going to take off and people were going to be using it to to fan the flames of uh, of this urban legend and make it a thing again, you know, we would have spent, you know, a page going through, you know, here's why this, this didn't happen. But at the time, you know, we, we we didn't think there was any need for it. And so, uh, you know, it's it's been a regret that we didn't do that. But it's been, because of that, so gratifying. I mean, yeah, like Emily said, you know, John Yuri, NASA never 
NASA never addresses urban legends like that. You know, I mean, NASA's not going to do a page saying, yes, we landed on the dang moon. You know, I mean, like, <laughs> they're not going to stoop. And so that that NASA had to, with <laughs> with this mutiny thing, that, that John Urey was willing to step up and say, okay, let's clear the air. Because like Emily says, I mean, poor old Ed Gibson, he's still around. He's having to live with this, you know. And so that Ed at least gets to see. I'm, I'm sorry that Jerry and Bill didn't get to see it cleared up as, as much as Ed has, but that Ed at least gets to see, hey, we, we've won the battle for you, is uh, is a gratifying thing. It's, Proper recognition. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's weird to me. I'll go on Twitter. If a journalist is spreading this story, I will in a heartbeat, you know, like, no, here's the facts. Correct your story. This, this yeah. is bad. The one that's heartbreaking is when it's like people in the labor community. Yeah. Because they've become heroes, you know, of of the labor community. Man, you know, you know, the power of unions, the power of labor. Let me tell you about the strike in space. And, you know, you know, it, it, it's a rallying cry for them. And, uh, you know, you kind of hate to. Uh, wouldn't it be Excel? <laughs> it never <laughs> happened. Yeah. But the tragedy of it is. They're trying to take lessons away from it, and the lessons that they're taking away are the wrong lessons. There are definitely things that we should be learning from the, uh, you know, the, the relationship between the crew and the ground and the operations for the third Skylab mission. But because of all the noise around it, the real lessons get lost. And that's, uh, you know, other than maligning the, the, the crew, that's the real tragedy of it. Four, three, engine sequence start. Two, one, zero. We have launch commit and we have liftoff. The clock is running and Skylab has cleared the tower. Tower at Houston Skylab 2. We fix anything. We've got a pitch and a roll program. Houston is now controlling. The thrust is going all engines. Boy, is that a smooth ride. 25 seconds, pitch and roll program started. Skylab now maneuvering to its proper flight path attitude. Mark 35 seconds, one nautical mile in altitude. Give it a green by range safety. Mark 45 seconds, cabin pressure relieving, adjusting now from sea level to a space environment. Mark 50 seconds, two nautical miles in altitude. And roll is complete, Houston. Roger. Stand by for mode one, Bravo. Mark, mode one, Bravo. Roger. Propellant up is RCS command. Roger. Mark, uh, one minute, eight seconds. Roll program complete. LA Houston, your feet wet. Roger, feet wet. That, that call up from Capcom, Dick Truly says, Skylab now capable of water landing. One minute, 20 seconds. Passing through the period of maximum aerodynamic pressure on the vehicle. One minute, 25 seconds. Well, speaking of lessons, and this is something that we didn't have time <clears throat> yesterday um, to necessarily get to as much as I would have liked. But, you know, what do you guys think? We, we heard from Jack and Milt, but what do you guys think are some of the lessons that we learned from Skylab that we're, you know, we're still using today in, you know, Space Station and then in the future with Artemis? Well, um, Skylab had a, a great many... Uh, physiological findings during its time in space. I mean, that was the first time they learned that, oh my God, you know, your face puffs up like crazy in space and that, you know, your body grows a couple of inches because your spine lengthens, you know, and that you get a big fluid shift. 
Um, they also learned that, you know, you, lo- you can lose bone and muscle mass in space. And they really learned that also, you know, to stay in space for an extended period of time greater than a couple weeks or so, you need to do a lot of exercise. You know, you need to um, not just because, you know, it's going to keep your bones and muscles in good shape, but also because when you get back to Earth, you're going to reacclimate a lot better, you know, whenever that is. And if you look at the third crew, when they came back, they were in the best shape of, you know, they look a little green around the gills because they'd been floating in the water a bit, but still they, they were in the best shape of any of the crews that came back. I mean, they, they really, you know, they, they implemented all the exercise and they implemented all the lessons from the first two missions that, you know, okay, we got to do this to stay healthy. So that's definitely something that spread um, to the ISS era. You know, on the ISS, they do a ton of exercise. I think yeah. I think they do, God, a few hours a day if you're doing a a, a long duration mission. You know, and and it, and it, they need to. And so that's a big lesson that was learned. Um, Skylab's legacy for me, um, and David has a great talk about this, so I'm not going to try to take too much of what he's going to say. But um, Skylab's legacy for me is, you know, I'm a big believer. (laughs) People are going to roll their eyes when they hear me say this. I'm a real big believer that eventually in the future, might not be right now or in the next 10 years, but, you know, um, we're going to have, we're going to settle space eventually. Humans are going to live in space for very long periods of time. And I think Skylab was really the first step in learning how to do that. I mean, it really was the trailblazing set of missions and i think those um the three crews um i'm hoping that they'll be remembered as the ultimate pioneers in how to do this because you know as we get and i'm thinking very long range i'm thinking in the next 100 to 200 years you know people are going to say you know we're going to leave the planet to you know to to establish things you know to have things of our own in space and that that's what i'm thinking about and i think the lessons learned from skylab physiologically and otherwise. And also, as we spoke about just a minute ago, uh, workflow, how do you work in space? How do you work successfully in space so that you're not overwhelmed? You know, so that every day isn't like a 16 hour sludge, you know, like I gotta do this, 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 and this. How do you schedule your days out? Skylab taught uh, future missions uh, a great deal in workflow in space and how to do those things. And that's important, you know, especially- Even for here on earth. Cool. When every day is a crunch day, nothing is a crunch day. When everything's important, yeah. nothing's important. When every when everything is an emergency, nothing's an emergency yep. anymore. Nothing's urgent because yeah. So yeah, it's the same thing in space. You know, the the traditions that we have on Earth, we're going to carry to space totally. And Skylab was very elemental in finding those things out. Yeah, like like you yeah. I can always add it. <laughs> Yes, like Emily said, I, I'm I'm eager to. I love talking about the uh, how Skylab becomes the foundation for everything that's come since. It's the first time that we're really spending time in in the microgravity environment instead of kind of passing through it on our way to the moon. So everything that we've done since with science aboard the International Space Station, with the way that we live and work in space, um, knowing what's possible with a spacewalk. You do, without Skylab, you don't have Hubble Space Telescope Repair. You don't have the International Space Station Assembly. Um, is all built on that foundation of Skylab. And then looking forward, um, 
you know, as you start talking about trips to Mars, um, crew psychology becomes almost as big as the, the the technical challenges when you start talking about spending months in the void between worlds. On the space station, you know, the favorite thing of astronauts to do is to, uh, to look out the window at Earth. Okay, well, what's it like when you're in, you know, month four of a trip to uh, to Mars and the view hasn't changed out your window for, uh, you know, for three, three, three months and three weeks? Um, how do you keep astronauts sane in that environment? And, you know, and part of the answer is you have to give them meaningful stuff to do. And because of Skylab, we, we have a sense of, yeah, there is stuff that you can do in that environment, in that, that you know, in that microgravity existence that, uh, that you can only do there, that's worth doing, that gives you purpose. Um, a fascinating one that, uh, you know, I, I don't know, embarrassingly, I don't know how much this has been studied, but uh, it's a thing that I would, you know, I would love to see explored a little bit more um, as we're getting ready to, uh, to go back to the moon and go, uh, go on to Mars. Mission operation paradigms are going to change, right? Right now aboard the International Space Station, there is almost constant availability of communication between the ISS and, and mission control. So at any point, if you, if you need help, if something's going on, you get on the radio, you can talk in, in real time with folks on, uh, on Earth. When you start talking about going to Mars... Um, that that's not going to be possible in the same way. And so Skylab is really our only experience with true long-duration spaceflight when you didn't have constant availability of communication between Earth and the ground. And so, you know, I, I, I'm hoping this year uh, with the 50th anniversary celebrations and, uh, you know, the astronauts doing some more appearances and getting to talk to them a little bit more to, uh, you know, what advice would you give and the astronauts and the, the ground controllers, you know, the Mill very much would have uh, wisdom on this as, as well as Jack and, and the others. Um, you know, what advice do you have as we're getting ready to do this thing that we haven't had to do in 50 years of, uh, of operating in a way that's now unfamiliar. And so, you know, even, even 50 years later, even uh, with all the experience that we have with shuttle and with ISS, um, there's still wisdom that, uh, that Skylab uniquely offers. Dig out and load first 23 down, 22 with the docking angle. Skylab Houston, we're AOS at Goldstone. We got you for the next 16 minutes. They give you a brief description as you suspected solar wing. One, two, right? Two is gone. Completely off the bird. Solar wing one is in fact partially deployed and the reason that you've got different readings not symmetric between your three solar panels is there's a bulge of meteorite shield underneath it in the middle and it looks to be holding it down. I, I think that we can take care of that with the SEVA. It looks at first inspection uh, like we ought to be able to get it out. The gold foil has turned considerably black in the sun. Roger, copy. Say again, Anko. The solar cell is clear. Here's some. Hey, Houston. Go ahead. On the vent modules, all the covers are still intact. Roger. The, the covers did not leave the vent modules on wing number one. 
copy. we're entering like the age of AI so you know maybe that's a good use case is just get all that you know all the information from flight controllers documentation and have a little uh, space station Mars you know chat G GTP <laughs> for space exploration um, you know you mentioned looking out the window and that was that was one of the things that struck that was one of the things that struck me for Skylab was the porthole and like initially they the engineers didn't want to include it but as, as i understand it from what i've seen like raymond lowey was instrumental in putting that window in and for those of you don't that that don't know who he is he's one of like the most famous industrial designers um, of like the 20th century um, did like lots of logo work cars train i mean planes he did just about everything can either of you say a little bit about that, that impact on the human aspect of spaceflight and why that work was important? Sure. So, uh, you know, so Skylab, it's, it's kind of underappreciated how much it was the first time that, that that was even a concern, right? I mean, you're talking about going to the moon, you know, the Mercury, the Gemini missions, the Apollo missions. You look at a Gemini spacecraft, it was not designed for comfort. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That was that was not a concern. The concern was, can they survive? If we take these two guys and we shove them in this can and we uh, lock them in there for a couple of weeks, will they be alive when we pull them out? Because because that's mission success. Um, so Skylab, you know, it's the first time that you're really kind of starting to look at how can we make the experience not only survivable, but livable um, for the astronauts. And so... Um, you know, a lot of that was done in-house. Um, you know, a lot of ideas floated. Let's, uh, you know, let's let's put a pole in to help them get from point A to point B. Um, in reality, bad idea. On orbit, the uh, the astronauts take the pole out because it's just in the way. You know, let's let's give them a good chair for the uh, for the telescope controls um, so that they can be comfortable. You know, to, to make it easier for them. And uh, in reality, bad idea. You don't want that in zero gravity. It, it it goes away. Um, the shower, famously. Um, I mean, is the is arguably to this day the single greatest luxury that's ever been launched into space. Um, the International Space Station today doesn't have one because, again, yeah, not really worth it. It's a uh, it's a waste of a uh, very 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 precious mass and volume. Um, the window, like you say, um, you know, I mean, today that's kind of a, a duh. Well, obviously they need a window. Um, but back then, you know, yeah, from an engineering perspective, the the crew only stays alive if this pressure vessel that they live in stays intact while they're there. Let's cut a hole in the side. <laughs> like, and so, you know, that NASA had the uh, the wisdom and uh, and 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 foresight to uh, to take that risk. Um, Really, you know, is is a is a point of pride for the agency back then, and 
you know, you look at the, uh, you know, the, the great grandbaby of, uh, of that window as the, the cupola on the International Space Station today, and it's impossible to imagine ISS without, without that. just that beautiful, beautiful view of our home planet. Well, Dr. Curvin, why were you the only crew member who didn't swear when the first docking attempt failed? on like the going from just surviving in space that was kind of one of the themes that Milt brought up yesterday it was just like the operational standpoint so you know hopefully that's something that we can continue to obviously we will you know carry into the future as we go back to the moon with gateway um are there any hopes that either of you have for what we're going to be able to do in the next you know couple decades as we go back to the moon and then hopefully you know beyond eventually 
Um, well, in our t- uh, in my time co-hosting uh, uh, Space and Things, cheap plug. Um, in my <laughs> time, allowed. in my time hosting that podcast, Dave Giles, my co-host, and I, we've interviewed a lot of people who are. Uh, looking at space kind of entrepreneurially, mm-hmm. but a lot of them are doing, you know, sort of startups where they're um, working on developing different types of infrastructure in space, you know, and um, we, there's companies out there who are developing, you know, space stations, uh, you know, and or, you know, developing, you know, sort of payloads or ways to fix payloads in space. And um, my hope is that, you know, in the next 10 to 20 years, um, we we see more of that, you know. We see sort of commercial commercial space stations as well, where you know, uh, you know, where we sort of, as Gerard K. O'Neill would have put it, you know, it opens the high frontier for like regular people, I guess, who might have a vested interest in space, but who might not be able to pass, you know, quite. Who can go to space physically, but, you know, might not be able to pass the the quite pass the physical for being an astronaut or or have seven PhDs or something <laughs> like that. You know, something because uh, but not to diss NASA at all. Obviously, NASA is going back to deep space with Artemis as well. There's the idea of the Lunar Gateway, which will be a, a space station in itself. So um, I think in the next 10 to 20 years, I, I think this is one of the most exciting if not the most exciting era for space flight, I mean, ever, you know, not to diss the Apollo era at all, that what they did was amazing and totally exciting. But I think now we're going to see multiple programs that are doing similar things that are going to go to Earth orbit and that are going to go to deep space. And we're going to see a lot of it. And it's going to be, and we'll have a truly off-world economy. And, you know, there'll be more, regular people who will know what the earth looks like for space. I think that's important too, because I think the message needs to be carried far and wide, you know, of, okay, this is why spaceflight is important to the economy. You know, just, you know, it's not just looking down at earth. I don't want to make it sound like, yeah, we'll go to space and look at earth and do some twirls and have fun and stuff. You know, it's also, I think people who go to space have a greater, um, have a greater concern for the environment. A lot of astronauts have come back from space and they realize, you know, how fragile the earth really is. It's not, you know, it's not as robust as you think it is. And I think more people need a, you know, sort of a universal appreciation from that. So I really think in the next 10 to 20 years, we're going to see the beginnings of, you know, just an off world economy. And it's going to be, it's going to be awesome to watch because we're going to just see a ton of different innovations. What a time to be alive. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay, I got a message I'd like to read to you. It's to Skylab Commander Conrad. On behalf of the American people, I congratulate and commend you and your crew on the successful effort to repair the world's first true space station. In the two weeks since you left the Earth, you have more than fulfilled the prophecy of your parting words, we can fix anything. All of us now have new courage that man can work in space to control his environment improve his circumstances, and exert his will, even as he does on Earth. Signed, Richard Nixon. Now, thank you from all of it. Uh, my wife, 10 years ago, was working as a bus tour guide at the Space and Rocket Center in Huntsville, doing bus tours of Marshall, and people would get on the bus. This was, you know, a, a few years after the retirement of the space shuttle, 
and people would get on the bus and say, oh, are we going to go see where NASA used to be, right? I mean, like there was this perception that, oh, we don't have American crew launch capability anymore. Like NASA has shut down. And, shut. And, and yeah, and we would just say, you know, just just be patient for a moment. And, and that moment is now where we have not an American space vehicle, but an American space fleet, right? <laughs> we have astronauts flying on Crew Dragon right now. We're going to have astronauts flying on, on Starliners soon and very soon. We're going to have astronauts flying on Orion next year. How awesome is that? You know, Emily talks about the uh, uh, the space economy, and, you know, I grew up watching 2001, and here's, you know, Pan Am's private jet flying up to the, the Hilton Space Hotel, and, um, you know, I'm not optimistic about Pan Am's chances, but, uh, <laughs> but, it, but it's SpaceX today, right? I mean, yeah. like, right now, that's happening. You, 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 you buy a ticket on a private space flight to, to go up to the space station. Hilton has been baking Hilton cookies on ISS, getting ready for this. They've partnered with uh, with one of the commercial Leo destination partners to uh, to design, you know, space accommodations. This is it's real. It's happening right now. Um, growing up in Huntsville, you know, there's a Saturn V as you're coming into town. I've 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 spent my life, you know, I've seen incredible launches and incredible things. But a part of me has been a little bit jealous of, you know, what would it have been like to to be at the space coast and watch this skyscraper-sized rocket blasting off into space. And in November, I found out, you know? <laughs> I was down there for Artemis One. Here's a skyscraper-sized rocket with, with more power off the pad than the Saturn V had, and I'm getting so that beast. moment. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I am rapidly closing in on the, uh, the half-century mark of my time on this planet, and I've never seen somebody walk on another world my three and a half year old son is is going to grow up thinking you know moonwalkers are normal. I mean, what an amazing cool. time! But you know, the question was, what am I most looking forward to? And I've got a book at home called uh, Your Trip to Outer Space, and it was published in 1957, 1958, and it's about how people are about to start going into space. And this is a guy that knew enough about this to write an entire book about it, and he writes about how people are about to start going into space, that this is going to start happening, and you know, he's, he's, he's what, you know, three, four years away from it, but he, he writes towards the end, people are going to go to the moon, you know, maybe, he says, in your lifetime, maybe... By the year 2000. <laughs> and he's right there. It's right around the corner. He's, he's, you know, he's, he's 10 years away and he has no clue. And what, what am I most looking forward to in the next you know, 10 to 20 years? The thing that I'm totally not expecting. The thing that, you know, looking back, oh, here's this guy, David Head. He knew about, enough about space to, uh, to write a book about it. And yet he had no clue that right All around the corner. Yeah. And that's the thing, the thing that just totally takes me by surprise um, is the thing that I'm most looking forward to. Yeah, and that's why I love studying history is just being able to place today's current events in the context of what's happened. And I, that's one of the things I hope we, you know, that we can do a better job at, at, at is getting the context for people, you know. We were talking kind of over lunch yesterday about like the spinoffs and why space is important. And maybe we don't need to, you know, come up with an answer for everyone. But if we can get the context right for enough people, you know, as we're entering this new age, I think that's what's going to matter the most. Well, and like Emily touched on, 
the direction space is going, there are going to be more opportunities for people to see themselves in it. And that's that's exciting. Yeah. And not even, you know, I, I want to make it clear, not even as a, like, you know, an astronaut. An astronaut is the most publicly visible role you can have, I think, in space flight. You know, everybody's like, you know, the astronauts are fame. Uh, well, not as much as they used to be, but astronauts tend to get more fame. You know, I mean, I think in the next decade or so, 20 years even, we'll, we'll see a lot more jobs. I mean, even for, you know, non-engineers in space flight, you know, we'll see, you know, artists and writers and podcasters, you know, exactly. I think we'll see all sorts of people, you know, able to enter the new space economy because I think a lot of people are going to be needed to, to also promote it, you know, and to get the point across. It's not necessarily just going to be engineers or scientists or people like that, you know? That's kind of what's exciting about, you know, whatever the Dear Moon mission goes. I mean, there's going to be some just everyday people, everyday astronaut, Tim. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Hey, a podcaster gets to go to space there. Uh, there's hope for us. A message was sent up to the crew late yesterday by teleprinter with procedures for leaving the orbital workshop and for entering the command module. Uh, under the title, Going Home, G-O-I-N, Home. Uh, this is the message uh, procedure for leaving OWS. One, sweep out OWS. Two, turn refrigerator on low. Three, turn out lights. Four, terminate paper delivery. Teleprinter paper, that is. Five, set air conditioning thermostat. Six, inform any nearby neighbors that you will be gone at least a month. Seven, put garbage out and pray for a pickup. Eight, Pack carefully. Be sure to include clean pair of socks. Nine, put the cat out. Procedure for entering the CSM. One, clean feet before entering CSM. Two, sit down and fasten seat belts. Three, adjust rear view mirror. Four, release emergency brake. Five, exercise particular care in backing up. And six, drive carefully and go straight home. We'll stand by now for acquisition at Goldstone and the start of the in-space news conference. Before we close, I was just looking through my Twitter. There was a question from Dave Ginsburg. Hi, John. If you're taking questions, I'd love to know about Jax and Fred Hayes' mission plans to reboost Skylab. I think the plan was to remotely pilot and dock a booster. How would that have been done? Was there a first-person camera on board the booster? And then part two, were there backup plans to use the shuttle's manipulator arm to either guide the booster or grab Skylab directly? I don't know if there was any grappling spots on Skylab. Um, Was there any consideration given to launching the booster on an expendable rocket and controlling it from the ground? Was that even possible in the 70s? Thanks. I'll try to answer some of it. Um, I don't think I can answer all of it. Um, There was a plan in the late 70s, 1978, um, and it bears mentioning in that time that the shuttle, the timeline for shuttle launches was incredibly optimistic. Um, You know, in 1978, honestly, there's a book I have called the the Observer's Book of Spaceflight, and it has a timeline in it for shuttle launches. And the first shuttle launch was going to go June 1979. And by 1992, there were going to have been 500 shuttle missions from both Kennedy Space Center and Vandenberg. Oh, 
And um, so, yeah, I mean, the time it, it was in the the timeline was insanely optimistic, uh, unrealistic, to be brutally honest. Um, so, you know, the shuttle was and, and it was being sold to Congress. You know, that was another thing they the had to sell truck. it. They had to sell it to Congress as being something very useful, you know, that, you know, whereas I hate saying it, you know, as much as I love the space shuttle in reality, it was an experimental space vehicle and it always would be one. So around 1978, um, NASA started to see that Skylab's orbit was decaying because, you know, increased solar activity. So they did come up with an idea uh, to uh, put the uh, I think it's called the uh, teleoperator retrieval system, TRS aboard uh, the space shuttle, which I believe would have been Columbia, uh, the first one, uh, to put it on aboard the space shuttle. I think that this would have been the second shuttle mission. And um, what would have happened was Fredo would, Fredo, as one does, Fredo, my friend. Now, but Fred Hayes would have been commanding the shuttle and, and Jack Lausma would have had sort of a remote controlled device to sort of, um, you know, to, to, to fly it attach it to Skylab, then they would fire. It was sort of like an IUS. It was like an inertial upper stage, sort of. And they would attach it to Skylab. Skylab would, you know, the, that engine would fire and it would be transported to a different orbit, you know, and everything would have been hunky-dory, blah, 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 blah. Um, I don't think it got... I don't think there was a plan to use the RMS, partly because I don't even know if the RMS was fully developed by that point. Um, you know, because know, that... The- the the arm the, the robotic, robotic arm. arm I okay. don't even think it was really fully developed by that point. Um, they if you if you look at shuttle history, they really didn't start using the RMS till STS two in 1981. I think for the first mission, they didn't even touch it. It was yeah. basically like, yeah, we're not even going to worry about this right now. Um, so I'm not even sure if they would have been able to have that capability by that point. Um, but um, basically, the what happened was by late 1978, um, the shuttle just, it was obvious the shuttle was not going to launch that year. I mean, they were having too many issues with the tiles and the main engines still. So that obviously was not going to happen. Another factor was Skylab was just coming down way too quickly. It was just, it was not going to be salvageable and, and NASA really became aware of that. So then the objective changed from Let's try to salvage it to let's try to bring it down as safely as we can without bringing it on people, which they were partially successful in doing. (laughs) They were they had a partial success. I don't they didn't intend to bring it down on Western Australia. It just sort of happened that parts of it came down on Western Australia. But um, so so, yeah. And unfortunately, uh, Fred and and Jack were without a mission. Uh, Fred, by that point, developed other interests and decided to resign from NASA um, and, you know, he, he went to work at Grumman and he had a pretty good, uh, he had a pretty amazing career in just aerospace in general from that point on. Jack stayed at NASA and he ended up commanding the third shuttle mission, which was STS-3 alongside Gordo Fullerton. And he's also gone on to have a, a amazing career. Um, he didn't stay at NASA much longer than that. I think he resigned in 1983 to do other things, but... Yeah, it was an audacious plan. It would have had it gone, had it actually gone off. It would have been really cool to see photos from it, I think. But um, unfortunately, between the shuttle just not being ready and and just Skylab was coming down way too quickly, they they really knew by the end of the year that they weren't going to be able to do much. So I hope that answered the question. Yeah. 
I, I think, um, and Jack touched a little bit on that yesterday about how Fred left the program too. So it's just, it was kind of a interesting position for those guys to be stuck in is, do you wait around? Yeah. Should I stay or should I go? <laughs> so. Well, it was a it was a transitional period, not just for NASA, but for a lot of the astronauts. Like I talked to Ed Gibson once, as one does. I talked to Ed Gibson and I asked him, you know, point blank, why did you leave NASA? You know, why didn't you stick around to do like a shuttle mission? And he and he basically was like, you know, I was in my forties, I had young kids, you know, and I I knew with the way the program was, I was going to be waiting for a long time for a flight because they, you know, by that point they had hired a lot more astronauts. And he was basically like, you know, I didn't want to wait until I was in my 50s to fly a space flight. You know, I wanted to move on to other things. And, and you know, and it, there was no hard feelings or anything like that. You know, no bitterness. He was just like, you know, it was time for me to move on. And a lot of the Apollo era guys felt similarly like, you know, I have kids. I'm in my 40s now. It's time to do something a little different. or 20-minute interlude. Uh, this is going to be at all. David, Emily, thank you for coming back on to talk a little bit more about Skylab. Um, we'll get you out of the green room here so you can go down into the museum and tool around down there and have fun. So thanks for coming on. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's it for this episode of the Cosmosphere podcast. We appreciate you listening. We would love to hear your feedback or questions, or if you have ideas for the show, please reach out to the Cosmosphere on social media um, and let us know what you think. 
We've got some exciting things lined up for this year, and we hope that you'll join us. Be sure to follow the Cosmosphere on social media. And as always, watch out on Cosmo.org for the calendar of events at the Cosmosphere. All of those links will be in the show notes for this episode, so make sure to check those out and follow along. We'd love to see you in person. For the Cosmosphere, I'm John Mulnix. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you soon.